Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 289 with Cassandra Frangos. Cassandra is laying out what it takes to become a chief something officer and how to develop the support you need along the way to make it happen. So you'll learn one, when to follow and when to disrupt company culture. Two, one thing you, us, we listeners, and most CEOs have in common. And three, how to pick up on the social cues that can make or break your career. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F289. And I hope you'll also check out some of our cool resources. One of the coolest resources I'll point you to right now is we made a professional preferences assessment and profile so you can get your customized snazzy graphical report sharing what drives happiness most for you at your job, which could be super helpful if you're thinking about whether or not to stay or go in your current role. So you can get that via visiting doistayorgo.com or doista yorgo, depending on how you segment words when you have multiple words put together. Doistayorgo.com slash doista yorgo. That's silly. Okay. Anyway, here is the story from Cassandra. Cassandra Frangos is an educational doctorate who is a consultant on Spencer Stewart's Leadership Advisory Services team. She collaborates with Fortune 500 ex- leadership teams on executive assessments, succession planning, leadership development, and top team effectiveness. Previously, she was the head of the global executive talent practice at Cisco, where she's responsible for accelerating the readiness of the talent at all levels of the organization to transform the business and culture. Through partnerships with the executive team, she deployed innovative approaches to organization design, succession planning, assessment, coaching, and development programs to drive business results and innovation. She also played an integral role in the 2015 succession planning for Cisco's CEO, one of the most respected and longest tenured CEOs in the tech industry. Big thanks to Cassandra for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Cassandra. Cassandra, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm a little bit interested to hear your story, how you made the leap from being a a vice president of global executive talent at Cisco over now to your current role. Yeah, so it's actually a, a funny story where I actually worked with Spencer Stewart at Cisco. I worked on our... CEO succession and C-suite succession. And Cisco was really just, I think, a great company that was able to partner with many firms. And in my role of executive talent, I did a lot of executive assessment and succession myself with my team. But when it came time for CEO succession, I really wanted an external partner. And Spencer Stewart was that for me and just were fabulous at helping me think about, well, how do our internal candidates compare to the outside? And what are some other things we should think about as we go through the CEO succession process? So we became friends and partners along the way. And then a few years later, after Chuck Robbins, the CEO of Cisco, was was well-established, you know, Spencer Stewart came knocking at my door and said, we'd love to have you as part of the team. And for those listening, they did not violate any non-compete. So oh. it, was, uh, <laughs> it was all above board. But, um, but yeah, I was happy to, you know, go work with, with many of the people that I had worked with previously. Oh, that's excellent. And and so, and I'm sure, boy, with that role doing talent at Cisco, I'm sure you must have just learned so many things and and seen so many things in terms of applicants and interviews and just the whole process of of folks 
kind of coming on board. I- I'd love it if you could maybe just share a tip or two when it comes to, hey, as someone who's done a whole lot of hiring and supervising of hiring, here's some do's and don'ts. Yeah, I think part of it is there's so many ways that people look at you in terms of your brand internally and externally, and people have ways of being a few degrees of separation. So, you know, sometimes you think, oh, they haven't called my direct boss, but actually someone has called your direct report from a few jobs ago to find out who you are as a leader. So I think the world is hyper-connected and just know that don't burn any bridges as you go along in your career because that is so important. And as I was, you know, in the role of talent, that was always a key part is what's this person's brand and what would they bring to a company like Cisco? Um, And then even as they were looking at internal jobs in Cisco, what was their brand in terms of the last team they worked with or what were they like as a young manager and what would they be like as an executive? So there's always interconnectedness there. And then always just be mindful of, of how you treat people. I mean, I think that's always something where, how did you treat the person who actually walked you into your interview or the admin who was helping you get everything scheduled? How you treat uh, those people is actually even more important as you think about even marketing yourself for a new job. Absolutely. And I'd like to follow up on your your point about not burning bridges there. In, In putting together this course about changing jobs and whether or not you should stay or go, it's been interesting how a lot of listeners have said, you know, they're really scared to to burn bridges and, and maybe they, they ought not to leave as a result. And so my intuition about this is that there's a, a good way and a not so good way to leave. And burning bridges specifically refers to kind of leaving people in a, in a tight spot. So any, any pro tips for exiting gracefully and how <laughs> to not let that fear stop you from from taking a worthy opportunity? Right. That's a good question. You know, so my advice would be if you're senior and you've got a huge team that you're responsible for or a large part of a business that you're responsible for is always be thinking about your own succession. That's one way to not leave a company in the lurch. So many senior executives are constantly thinking about their own succession so that they're not leaving a company in the lurch or even if they move on to a different internal role, there's somebody who is really ready to take over the business or take over the team. Uh, So there's some continuity there. The other is I always like to give people the advice of leave a job on a high note. You know, don't think about leaving the job when you're on a downhill. Think about changing jobs internally or externally. When you really feel like you've maxed your potential, everything is running well, and it's a good time to hand off to somebody else. Don't necessarily think about leaving it when it needs a big turnaround or it's a mess because chances are you're going to need to be fixing it and it could burn a bridge if you're leaving it in a complete shambles. Oh, well, thank you. That's helpful. And so well, let's talk about your book here, Crack the C-Suite Code. What's the, the main idea here? Yeah, so it's actually inspired by a lot of executives or aspiring executives that I've worked with over the years who kept asking me, so how do you get into the C-suite? I mean, it seems like this mystery of a question sometimes, and I felt bad that everybody thought it was such a mystery. So I just wanted to write something that outlined different paths to the C-suite and make it inspirational in the sense that there's many paths, many different ways to get there, and it doesn't have to be just one answer for everybody. It can take many different turns for each person. Okay. Well, well, share with us, you know, what are some of the the main insight takeaways here? Yeah. So there's a few different paths. One that you would probably think of is 
stay at a company for a really long time and, and reach the top. There's so many executives who have inspirational stories where they started out on the front line and then reached CEO, or they started out with really not qualified for some of the jobs that they had, and they ended up in the C-suite. So tenured path is certainly one that I talk about in the book. The second is, you know, you've reached maybe a peak at your company and you say, I really, really want to make it to the C-suite, but I don't think I'll make it here. And they jump out and actually become part of the C-suite of a, maybe it's a smaller company or just a different type of company. I see that happen all the time where someone's dream and they can't sleep at night if they're not a chief financial officer or they're not a CEO and they just won't necessarily make it at their current company. So if they go to a different company or a smaller company, they've reached the top and absolutely love it and enjoy being part of the top. Um, the other path is the founder path where you know, you've worked maybe at a, a smaller, larger company, you've had great experience, and you have such a passion for starting your own company. And that's where you take the path of a founder and just really have an idea that you feel passionate about and you really want to make a difference with your own company. That's another path. And then finally, the path that's probably at least likely for you to be able to control it, but leapfrog succession is something that's actually becoming more of a trend, which happened at Cisco, where leapfrog uh, succession is where you were a couple levels below the C-suite and you jumped over a level to get into the C-suite. So for example, Cisco CEO jumped over a level to become the CEO. And that's becoming more and more common. That is intriguing. And, and what are the circumstances that make that occur? You know, I think there's uh, there's a few different ones. One is the company is is really ready to embrace a new leader who is a bit more innovative or, you know, even has some new ideas to embrace new technology or take the, the business in a different direction. It doesn't necessarily mean a full turnaround, but it is someone who has some different ideas and, and is able to leapfrog the company, if you will, into, uh, into great success. The, all, the other thing is, you know, they have established themselves internally as really being someone who has great followership across the company. So when we announced uh, Cisco's CEO, Chuck Robbins, you know, standing ovation from across the company, people just saw him as a natural fit and somebody who would really take Cisco into the future. So if it's a leapfrog, it does have to be someone who has great followership. Okay, cool. Well, so we have a, a few pathways there in terms of, of segmentation and, and arriving at the C-suite. And, and I'd like to maybe sort of go back in time a little bit for folks who are, are not a year or two or three away from that point just mm -hmm. yet. Uh, can you also share within the book, you've got some kind of universal accelerators and, and derailers that can really make a world of difference when it comes to the rate of regression. Sure. I mean, accelerators can certainly be looking at something that you haven't done before. So if you're a few levels or even several levels below top executive roles, it's taking on the white space or a new assignment, something that you've never done before. It sort of reinvents yourself. You get to know different executives across the company. The other is just collecting experiences. I love this one executive I worked with. You know, He would always describe it as each experience, he's collecting little nuggets that help him become even more valuable to the company and his career. So that can often be accelerating. And then the other is really having the right sponsorship internally and externally in the company. So if you're inside a company and you're thinking about making the next step, 
do you have the right sponsorship of key people who would really say, absolutely promote this person? I would bet my bonus on this person. They will get results. They're the right kind of fit. They're absolutely the right person to accelerate the company or in that particular role. Um, So you do need really good sponsors along the way and people who will really take um, a risk on you as well. Because chances are, not everybody's done these jobs several times over. I mean, many CEOs will say, hmm, I'm not really qualified to do this job, but somebody is willing to take the risk on them. Intriguing. And, and do you have any pro tips for how you go about identifying those sponsors and winning them over? Yeah, I think one of them is chemistry. I mean, if you don't have right chemistry with someone, they're not going to sponsor you. So it can start off as a mentoring relationship where you are just asking for advice and then over time, you build a relationship and then it really grows into more of a sponsorship where they are willing to say, I'm going to take this person on and make sure they get promoted. Um, So it's being smart of who you're connected with and and who you might have chemistry with, because if if you don't, then you can't really force it. It's not something that you could just say, you know, Pete, I want you to be my sponsor. You know, it's not going to happen if we don't have a relationship or there hasn't been some way where we've been successful together. So I think that's important as you think about sponsorship. Okay. Well, how about the flip side of this, uh, the derailers? Yeah. So this one is uh, fun where if you think oh, about... It? <laughs> it doesn't sound fun, Cassandra. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a, a question that I asked many senior executives and I said, all right, what's what's been something that you've seen derail other executives? And they said, too big of an ego. And you just hear the funniest stories of the way this plays out. You know, arrogance really doesn't get you too far in the world. And a lot of senior executives will make it to a certain level. And then you just see them derail because of too big of an ego. And I think with also the way the world is going in terms of more interconnectedness and think about collaboration, no one wants to work with somebody who has too big of an ego or is just arrogant, or they only want to hear themselves talk and they don't want to hear anyone else's point of view. So that can be something to really watch out for. I mean, you need to have confidence, of course, if you're going to make it to the C-suite, but if you're too arrogant, um, it really won't get you anywhere. And you know all those people you've met. I mean, you, you, you know them right away. So I want to hear the stories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll tell you one, but you know, one was, was where it was uh, an executive who constantly got feedback that he would not listen to anyone's point of view. So he'd be in meetings and he would interrupt you every two minutes. Doesn't matter who it was that would interrupt them. Could be a brilliant engineer that really had a great point. Just kept interrupting, wouldn't listen to anyone's point of view. Everyone left the meeting deflated. And then if they received feedback or, oh, we we might need to move the product a different way, or we might need to think about this differently, just said, no, I'm right. I know I'm right. I've always been right. And thanks for the opinion. (laughs) Mm. Okay. Noted. Don't do that. Thank you. (laughs) Well, and I want to also dig into your take on, you say a lot of times when there is is a failure of leadership, it is largely due to a cultural misfit. And sometimes I wonder if when I hear fit, you know, if, if it's just a euphemism for something else entirely, or like, I'm not going to tell you that this person's a jerk or we hated him, or he completely failed to deliver all the things that we wanted, uh, he, you know, him or her to deliver upon. But I, I think other times there, there's something that, that's really true in terms of cultural fit, whereas this person is A, the culture's more so B, and it's not a fit. So could you just really 
you know, lay that out in terms of several examples for what shows up as, oh, hey, these things fit or these things don't fit. Yeah. I mean, I think it's looking at what kind of environment people can flourish in. So we've all met someone who would probably be great in a very structured banking culture. And they just would really flourish in the way of having procedures, policies, doing the same thing very reliably and would just get really excited about doing that every single day. On the flip side, you can think about someone who would probably absolutely love to work for Apple, you know, would love the innovation, love different ways of of creating new products, and they're probably willing to take some risk. Maybe it's a little bit more agile. So you can think about two different spectrums, and you can even think about yourself as to where you would fit most readily in, inside a culture. And you can really feel it because you can get a sense of, oh, I'd really be excited to work here, or, oh, I think this would stifle me. And I, I don't think this would be the best culture for me. So I think it can go different ways where certainly people can use culture as an excuse to, well, this person just didn't work out. Or they really do breed the culture. You know, you can also think about, you know, I live in Boston and around great universities. And, you know, there's always this debate of what's the difference between Harvard and MIT. And I have actually a friend who's a professor at each. And the MIT professor is really entrepreneurial, loves to do things different ways, tries different things in the classroom. And then Harvard Business School is really grounded in case study method. So this professor that I'm friends with, you know, he is very reliable in the way that he teaches because it's through the case study method. And that's how he was taught. And that's how he knows how to teach. Um, so if you put him at MIT, he actually might not su succeed because he can't teach cases over and over again. And if you put the MIT professor at Harvard, he may not actually be great at the case study method. Okay, so that's a nice dimension there in terms of stable, repetition, follow the process versus new, bold, innovation, different stuff. So that's a cool one where we could see a misfit. Could you give a few more examples? Sure. I mean, I think... The other is a little bit more nuanced in terms of, are you a fit with the top team or the team that you're part of? So there was one executive that I worked with where just could not get to the right place in terms of finding his way in the culture, just couldn't really find a way to establish himself in a way where he was respected and respect is everything in an organization and your ideas are sort of intangible. So he couldn't get his ideas through because he just wasn't really catching some of the subtle cues in the culture. And it was just a shame because he was brilliant, but without having that acceptance on the team or the team saying, hey, let me help you learn this culture. It's pretty complex and I want to help you succeed. So that can be just something really subtle where someone can be not successful. And what are some of those, those cues that one might miss? I think it's how do people communicate? So if you're a person who tends to just love to communicate by email and actually not walk down the hall, that can be a cue that you'd miss where you're actually, if you observed a little bit, you'd see Actually, everybody's buzzing around the hallways and they love to say, hey, let me catch you for two minutes to run this idea by you. Instead, you're just kind of doing it all by email and you're wondering why you're not getting anywhere. So that could be a cue. The other is it's a highly social environment. So the way you can get work done is, is actually by building strong relationships. And not that you have to go to dinner with them every night, but it's that you actually do show an interest in them personally and you want to really 
understand them and build the relationship so you can get work done. If you're missing that cue and actually just jump to, all right, here's the agenda. Here's what we need to get through. How are you going to help me get this done? Mm, probably they're not going to help you because you didn't build the relationship with them. And I'm curious now, do you see it in, in the reverse in terms of we are a very task-oriented kind of a culture, and, and mm-hmm. your attempt to build a relationship with me is unwelcome and a waste yeah. of time. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. I've, seen, I've seen that many <laughs> times over. Yes. <laughs> okay. I understood. Well, I, I like these dimensions because it, it makes it all the more real and tangible for me. So, all right, we got, so innovation versus stable. Is it kind of more email versus walk there face-to-face? Is it more kind of task-oriented versus relationship-oriented? What are a few more distinctions? Yeah, I think the other is how hierarchical is it? Some organizations really rely on the org structure and you must go to this person and then that person and follow somewhat of an order or hierarchy. Other organizations are really, it doesn't matter, go to the best person who has the answer or just find your way through to the right set of people who will help you. So that that can depend where I have seen some stumble where, ooh, you actually didn't follow the hierarchy and now you've gone sort of several levels that didn't, it didn't make sense and you've actually caused some conflict just because you didn't observe how some of the hierarchy and order worked. Or, you know, if you are actually just trying to go more to the right, to the source and you know, people are seeing you as, "Mm, why did you just jump down to talk to all these different people that they don't know who you are and it's intimidating. And, you know, so just finding those, those subtle cues are also important as another dimension. And I'd love to get your take on, in terms of cultural fit, I guess at, at times there's something that could be helpful about breaking from the norm. And so, yeah, what's your thought on when is it optimal to zag as opposed to toe the line? Yeah, sometimes you've been hired actually to zag outside of the line. So sometimes I've seen people who've been hired where it's, you are actually hired to be disruptive and I don't want you to listen to, well, this is the way we've always done it. Um, That's often an annoying line for many people. So they might actually have an explicit charter. And if they communicate that that's their charter and they are looking for new and different ways to accomplish something or a new way of doing business, it can often be, I think, a great accelerator for a business. Uh, It can be a lot more challenging if you have a culture where they love to say, we've always done it this way for 50 years. So who are you coming in and telling me to do this different? But yeah, it can be really interesting when that happens. Intriguing, yes. Well, so now could you give us a little bit of detail in terms of if folks are looking to to rise quickly, we talked about some universal accelerators and, and derailers. Mm-hmm. Are there any other smart approaches? You use the word brand several times in terms of really making that pop in, in terms of your, your deploying, your experience, and, and everyone's thinking this person's great. Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, life is short, so it's finding what you love. I think if you're passionate about what you do and you love what you do, that's going to show through and chances are you will accelerate on your own in the sense of people can really see you're great at what you do and you love what you do. If you have those two things, it can really take you far. And that's where also sponsorship can come in. If people see that they really, you know, really loving what you do and you're good at it, they will more likely sponsor you. The other thing is I wouldn't be afraid of failure. I mean, there's been lots of readings around this lately where people are really 
willing to openly admit their failures and learning from them. If you don't learn from them, then certainly <laughs> that's, that can be just failure. But, you know, thinking through what are some risks you can take that could accelerate you. Many, many times I've seen executives take a big risk and it paid off and they accelerated right to the top. So that can, that can also be something important. The other is you also have to think about, do people want to work for you? So if you are going to accelerate to the top, chances are you will have people who work for you. And what are you like as, as a manager, or as a leader? It can't just be that you are great at managing up or your boss thinks you're fabulous. It's now more important to think through what do your direct reports think? What do your peers think in terms of your effectiveness? And what do your leaders think about you in terms of your effectiveness? So it's having that 360-degree relationships, but also followership, and having the impact you need on all of those different stakeholders. Okay, good. Thank you. Well, I'd also love to make sure, you know, while, while I've got you to get a little bit of the, the insider perspective, if you've got some tactics or tips, tricks, or stories from many of the executives that you've gotten to interact with personally, you know, what are some insider goodies that anyone who wants to be awesome at their job should know? Yeah, I think it's certainly thinking about your career and your profession as a way where you are, you're almost putting the company interest first as well, where it's not about you. You know, I think that's where the the ego part uh, came in where we were talking about before. So if you're out for yourself, people will see right through it. If you are out for creating impact for your company and the profession or whatever it might be that you're part of, I think that is that is often the something that differentiates many leaders. Also, I can't emphasize this enough, being willing to listen and really being a sponge for learning and really thinking through what did this person just say so that I can really think through how I can act on it or make a difference based on what I'm learning and seeing. So, you know, many CEOs will say they're lifelong learners because they're always listening. They're always curious. They're always thinking about some of the signals they're seeing from customers, from the market, from employees. So I think listening and, and being curious and learning all the time is something important. The other I would say is reinvention. Reinventing yourself always is something that will take you, I think, very far. John Chambers, who I used to work for at Cisco, who is one of the greatest CEOs in the tech industry and also a wonderful person, he'll say that he reinvented himself every three years. And it was something that always accelerated his career because he never wanted to be stuck in old business models or old ways of thinking. He had to keep reinventing and keep being fresh and keep learning and always thinking about all the different senses and all the different pieces that would help him reinvent himself. Oh, thank you. Now, on that listing point, I'd love to get your take on how would you paint a picture for what outstanding, world-class, masterful listening, you know, looks, sounds, feels like, versus kind of run-of-the-mill or what passes for listening in, in daily interactions. <laughs> yeah. So I think wonderful listening is you really are listening with all senses. That's why many people study body language, because what people actually do when they're watching body language and they think about, well, what did, how did my words or how did they have impact on me and, and how did that make that person feel? 
you know, I think that's that's a really important way of listening is really looking at someone's body language. Also, just intently really hearing them and, and pauses are okay. I think people are so afraid of pauses where you really are just taking it in what they just said and you're soaking it up and sometimes taking notes by hand. We often all now take notes by a computer or our iPhones and actually taking notes, pen and paper or your iPad pencil, you know, you often can remember what somebody said a whole lot more by actually writing it down. And then also just being aware of subtle cues and the tone. If someone said, oh, I'm doing great today, or I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing good today. I mean, there's different ways that you can hear the fluctuation in someone's voice. And then on the flip side, I think a, a terrible listener you know, as somebody who's just waiting to talk. I mean, I often see, see that in some of the settings where I coach different teams um, of executives, and I can just tell the executive who's just really not listening to you at all or listening to the group, and they're just, they can't wait to talk and get their point out. And their point actually had nothing to do with the previous point. So it feel the conversation actually feels like ping pong versus it builds on each other, and they truly listen to each other and built on each other's points. And, and I love your take. If, if you see that a lot in executives, how do you imagine they got to be executives? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think some of it is, do they stay executives if they have that behavior still? So I think that there's one thing to become an executive. So some people can actually get there, but to stay there also requires another kind of finesse where you and I the newspaper every day and hear of an executive who didn't make it or suddenly was abruptly leaving their company, chances are they probably had some of these derailing behaviors. Now you end your book with a, a final question. What is it? Question is, do you really want to be in the C-suite? And I pose that because it's not for everyone. I mean, not everybody really wants to be in the C-suite. It takes a lot of, lot of work, also a lot of responsibility, a lot of, I think, uh, tenacity, and it takes a pretty big toll on your family and your personal life. Yeah. Thank you. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to highlight before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things. I think you, you touched on a lot of it. I would just say that finding your own path, you don't necessarily have to follow a perfect formula, but finding your own path can be really fun. And setting your own career vision is something really inspiring. I mean, I, I actually read my uh, paper that I wrote for my master's program and the vision I wrote is actually what I'm doing right now. So if you can kind of think longer term and think about what's motivating to you, you can have a really fun career. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Well, now I'd love to get your take. How about a favorite quote, something that inspires you? Yes, I actually have it on my desk right now. It's um, Be Yourself Because Everybody Else Is Already Taken by Oscar Wilde. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I love uh, Boris Gersberg's study on stars. So what really makes stars in different companies? All right. Thank you. And a favorite book? Love the book Resonant Leadership because actually it's two of my professors who are in different schools and I didn't know that I'd actually be in the same, uh, in the school of different, these two different authors, but um, Richard Boyatzis uh, taught in my master's program at Case Western and Annie McKee who taught in my doctoral program at University of Pennsylvania. Oh, we had Annie McKee on the show. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. She's wonderful. Yep. And how about a favorite tool? I love the Hogan assessment, actually. It's a tool that actually helps a leader understand uh, their leadership profile, but also their derailers. Oh, thank you. And a favorite habit? Thank you notes. Handwritten thank you notes. Do you have a particular stationery or how do you do it? Yeah, I actually got a gift from someone um, that I coached of stationery with my name on it. 
in my favorite color of purple. And so I love, I love just writing whether someone did something small or big for you, just writing something personal to them because you can do an email that's too fast. It's too quick. It's actually not that special anymore. So handwriting it and getting something in the mail is pretty special. Yes. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and and resonate with folks? You hear them quote it back to you. I think actually relates to my favorite quote of really being yourself. I think that often resonates with people where I just often say, this doesn't sound like you. Are you trying to do this because you think you should do it? Or do you really believe you should do it? So I do hear people thanking me for that often where they'll say, you know what, I just, I was myself and it, and it paid off and <laughs> I'm really happy that I wasn't trying to do something that I wasn't comfortable with. And if folks want to learn more, or get in touch with you, where would you point them? LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. I'm posting different things, but my personal email is on there or you can just write to me directly from LinkedIn. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would, uh, I would think about how to reinvent yourself back to the John Chambers piece where just What's, what are some of the ways you're going to reinvent yourself, either small or big, to make sure you can really truly succeed? All right. Well, Cassandra, thank you for the book and for this conversation and demystifying this stuff. It's been a lot of fun and uh, I wish you all the best. Well, thank you. Same to you. I really like the way Cassandra laid out the cultural differences because I think it can be common if you have strong beliefs and values about the way things should be. When the culture is just not that and you do it your way versus the cultural way, things don't work out so well in the short term. Innovative versus stable. Do we do the email versus the walk on by? Do we work via relationship building or via kind of task knocking out? Is it hierarchical versus weave your own path and find your own way? Handy stuff to bear in mind in terms of making sure you're choosing an optimal approach given the unique context that you're in. So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F289. And I hope you'll push subscribe. If you have not already, you'll hear from our next guest. He is Steve Sims, founded a really cool company called Bluefish that does executive concierge stuff in terms of making amazing experiences happen for people. So he's got a few tips and pointers about making impossible things happen in terms of creative questioning and building linkages and connections so greatness unfolds. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.